Coming up this hour, we're talking Falwell again. Plus, we're talking Joe Biden and Stephen Furtick. You're listening to The Common Good. Everyone, happy Friday, as I know Brian loves to say, and it is kind of growing on me. I'm not going to lie. I, I said it in a video earlier today. Happy Friday. And I thought, who am I? Who am I becoming? This, <laughs> this never used to be me, but uh, you're rubbing off of me, Brian. A couple of quick you're things welcome. before we dive into this rapid fire, quick fire sort of first segment here on a lovely sunny Friday. I, always, I already went with a, on a walk with my family and uh, nice. my goodness, it is lovely. I should be in the treehouse right now. What am I doing? You really should. There's no doubt about that. Not, there's just too much going on in the backyard. You guys would hear nothing but like chainsaws and people having bonfires already. It's it wouldn't be it wouldn't be good radio either way. You can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is you get your podcasts. Subscribing, rating, reviewing, all of that helps us out a whole ton, and we're super grateful for all of you who have already done that. I'm going to let uh, Brian Fromm kind of tee up this first one from the DNC yesterday, and uh, we're going to get a bit of an audio clip after that. Yeah, last night was the final night of the Democratic National Convention, and it was a different one. And, you know, I, they did a good job uh, under the constraints of having to do it completely virtual and this and that. And so obviously the headliner last night was jo- uh, Joe Biden speaking and uh, he gave an impassioned speech. Uh, but there was a two minute speech that really kind of stole the show. And I'm about to let me make a little disclaimer here that I'm fully aware that when we compliment things the Democrats do, it makes people angry. And we compliment things the Republicans do, it makes people angry. I sure. think we've just become okay with that. Yeah. But there was a moment last night where a 13-year-old boy uh, who uh, has a stuttering issue, he has a stuttering problem. And the story goes like this. His name's Braden Harrington. Uh, I, within the last year, him and his dad went to a Biden rally and they met Joe Biden and they said, we're here because I have a stuttering problem. And Joe Biden has always had a stuttering issue in his whole life. And Joe Biden was so kind to this kid. And I saw a video of it where he just talked him through like he, how he writes a speech to kind of help himself, the, hmm. the poems he reads to to help him learn how to read better, all this stuff. And apparently Biden has kept up with this kid uh, via phone or email or whatever over all this time, genuinely trying to help this 13 year old by the name of Braden Harrington. Uh, and they had Braden speak last night. And so, again, the really cynical people out there are going to go, wow, what a publicity stunt by the Democrats. But uh, the courage that this kid, this this teenager showed by by recording a mess, a two minute message while he still has a stuttering problem, I thought was so brave. And if you saw Twitter last night, it kind of stole the show last night. This kid, people were just going, this is the bravest person, 13 year old I know. And so I thought it would be a cool way to start just by listening to it. And again, uh, he was brought on to uh, talk about the role that Joe Biden has played in his life. So it's Braden Harrington. Hi, my name is Braden Harrington and I'm 13 years old. And without Joe Biden, I wouldn't be talking to you today. About a few months ago, I met him in New Hampshire. He told me that we were members of the same club. We, we, stutter. It was really amazing to hear that someone like me became vice president. He told me about a book of poems by Yates. He would read out loud to practice. 
He showed me how he marks his addresses to make them easier to say out loud. So I did the same thing today. And now I'm here talking to you today. About the future. About our future. My family often says when the world feels... Better before before talking about something normal like going to the movies. We all want the world to feel better. We need the world to feel better. I'm just a regular kid, and in a short amount of time, Joe Biden made me more confident about something that's bothered me my whole life. Joe Biden cared. Imagine what he could do for all of us. Kids like me are counting on you to elect someone we can all look up to. Someone who cares. Someone who will make our country and the world feel better. We're counting on you to elect Joe Biden. Yeah, that that really does take a lot of... I mean, that's scary just being 13 in general, but to be willing to... And again, like you mentioned, I know plenty of people will be cynical. We'd actually love to know what you think. Was this really heartwarming? Was it a publicity stunt? Is it not for us to judge? Where, where do you kind of land on the issue? We have the article up at our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think about all of that. Another thing that I saw floating around the news, and again, this might be a little more inside baseball for like two passers to be interested in this, but uh, the headline out of relevance simply reads, Stephen Furtick will replace Kenneth Copeland on TBN. Let me just ask, Brian, why is this a big deal? I mean, Kenneth Copeland has been a part of TBN, which is a Trinity Broadcasting Network's lineup for 40 years. And we've done some stories about Kenneth Copeland in the last year where he's just yeah. comes across as certifiably crazy. Uh, and after 40 years, the, the televangelist is being taken away from the lineup and taking his place is a pastor, a younger pastor uh, from Elevation Church uh, in, uh, in North Carolina named Stephen Furtick. If you're unfamiliar with Stephen Furtick, he has a big church. He is really dynamic, but he's also viewed by a lot of people as kind of the next wave of prosperity gospel. And remember the whole preachers and sneakers stuff. Uh, and so it, it, it kind of feels like it's just kind of a younger version of, of kind of the same shtick. Other people I know love Stephen Furtick and are really inspired, listen to him all the time. So it remains to be seen what this does. But the very fact that Copeland was on there for 40 years, this is a major change in Christian broadcasting. And uh, for Stephen Furtick at the age of the at the age of 40 to be the next one in, uh, we're going to see. It could be uh, really interesting having him do this. So let me ask you a question that you and I, you know, don't really have the uh, opportunity to decline. If you were offered a position like this, how would you kind of navigate for you whether or not that's a, that's a good decision for you and your church and your community? How would I navigate it? I think that I would I would weigh the opportunity. I'd go, okay, what's what's the opportunity here? What role will it play in my church? Someone like Furtick with a huge church like this, he probably actually has a lot of uh, a freedom to kind of do things like this. Um, it's a lot of what I had to weigh and you had to weigh when we took on this radio show, right? Yeah, like, sure. what's it going to mean for my family? What's it going to mean for my church? What are the opportunities? And then stepping in for someone like Kenneth Copeland, I'd want to uh, probably from the beginning show how I'm going to be different and uh, and go that route. But that's probably how I'd weigh it. What what uh, eventually what's most important in my life, family, 
my my home church and what role will that play? And if I thought it fit well, and then then I would uh, I'd absolutely do something like that, just kind of like how you and I are doing this radio show. <laughs> I think there's probably <laughs> other aspects to consider other than just simply like time and opportunity, because in some ways he's stepping into a role and, you know, from some people's perspectives, a persona, like there will certainly like for us, there were never any common good hosts before us where it felt like, Oh, they definitely align themselves with this, Mm. the common good legacy that they're stepping into. You know, you talk about something like a network, like TBN, you talk about someone who has been as divisive as Kenneth Copeland. I think that there's, it's to me. It feels like there's more things to consider other than one: is this a good opportunity? Two: yeah. Do I have the time and the bandwidth? Three: Do I feel like God is leading us towards this? I think there's like two or three other categories where, and again, maybe He is concerned about those things. Maybe that's a lot of the work He's going to have to do at the onset to like create, you know, some some level of distinction between Him and uh, the guy He's right. replacing. But either way, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. You know, I uh, you and I both probably have our opinions on Furtick, but. Either way, let's uh, let's let's pray for him. Let's pray that he uses the platform well and points people to Jesus. And I think I think that's really interesting. Coming up next, I want to talk Falwell a little bit. And I got two articles here. The first says that 50 pastors who graduated from Liberty University demand Falwell be, quote, permanently removed. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian from brian i should say to you though a very special holiday today uh it's national senior citizens day so congratulations um thank you every day i'm closer every day (laughs) (laughs) do you remember a year and a half ago i made some comment i said that you were you were fatherly or something like that and you took such offense to that you were so for like weeks after you're like i'm only six years older than you or whatever (laughs) true it's true like forever ago what was that what was that conversation even about i don't even remember. i don't remember but you you got the right word though you definitely called me fatherly and i kind of looked at you like what <laughs> no one's ever called me fatherly I man I, let's let's make that an online question is that an insult or a compliment i meant it as a compliment like you have a, yeah. a it's a pastoral sort of oh yeah i was talking about the way that you lead your church that's what it was i was like yeah you just kind of have this sense of like hey i'm i'm here to care for you yeah either way maybe I was the homeschooled one here, so maybe I don't maybe I don't have a firm grasp on what's insulting and what's not. Uh, now that I think about it, I don't think that it's insulting. I must have been overly sensitive that day. You must have just caught me on a day where I was feeling old. <laughs> I totally get that. I fully under, I fully understand the sentiment. Okay, so we're gonna do really two segments on Fallwell. Should I use his full name or should he just be Fallwell? Like it's a like it's a code name or something. People, that's the thing when I say Fallwell. People know exactly who I'm talking about. That's that's what's kind of interesting about that right now is everyone everyone who at least if they're like dialed into Christian news they uh, right. they have a sense of what's going on. So the first is a little shorter. It's out of uh, Christian Post and it simply says 50 pastors who graduated from Liberty University demand Falwell be quote permanently removed. What's going on here? Yep, a group of 50 ministers, as you said, that graduated, they want President Jerry Falwell to be permanently removed from office. Falwell agreed to take an indefinite leave of absence earlier this month following a controversial social media post showing him with unzipped pants and his belly hanging out while his arm was wrapped around his wife's pregnant secretary. The letter was sent to Liberty's Board of Trustees and acting university president, Jerry Prevo. The alumni told the university that the Lynchburg, Virginia-based Evangelical Christian School needed, quote, new leadership that represents 
the heart of Liberty University's mission. It's because of our deep love they wrote for Liberty University and our great optimism for its future that we write to you today to urge you, the Board of Trustees, to permanently remove Mr. Falwell as president and chancellor and replace him with a new leader. It goes on to say some more stuff about how he came uh, into office or into power after his father died in 2007. Uh, but man, I again, y- you joke about how often we're talking about him and and uh, and that people know what to expect when we bring up Jerry Falwell's name right now. And I think that's that's what they're getting at. Like he has turned into increasingly, increasingly a black eye for the school that he leads. And he doesn't necessarily seem to care. And as we talked about last week or two weeks ago, when he was put on indefinite leave of absence, we kind of said, I bet you this is he's going to show up again. They're going to bring him back. But it's interesting not just to have 50 alumni, but 50 pastors, I think, says something. Yeah, uh, like yeah. we went through liberty. We're 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 pastors. Uh, we feel this weight as to kind of what Jerry Falwell is doing for the student body, for reputation, for everything. Uh, and then you add on what came out on social media this week with those weird pictures of Falwell in the weight room, and it's just something every week. And so it's really going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I think if there's more. Uh, coalesced public pressure like this, I think it's more likely that he never reclaims that job. I think they were probably trying to wait for this to kind of calm down. Uh, and so these types of groups are saying, we're not going to let this calm down. And uh, it's interesting. I, th- I think it's impressive to see this sort of coalescing together. Well, let me let me just read a little bit from the letter before I move on to this second article. Some of it says, uh, it is because our of our deep love for Liberty University and our great optimism for its future that we write to you today to urge you, the Board of Trustees, to permanently remove Mr. Falwell as president and chancellor and replace him with a new leader. We do not write out of any personal vendetta against Mr. Falwell. We recognize that under his leadership since his father's death in 2007, the school has experienced significant financial and institutional growth and added important programs that are poised to shape a generation of Christian leaders in nearly every field of study. So it, it actually feels like a pretty honoring. It's not a scathing like or else, uh, which I appreciate. I appreciate kind of the tone and general sentiment behind it. Like we love this community, which to me is sort of a microcosm of why I think it's important when we've talked about, you know, previous in previous shows where to criticize America doesn't mean that you hate America. Right. It, it might very well mean that you love it so much that you want to see it be its best, you know, and that's part of the sentiment here that I think these, uh, these pastors are writing with. The second article is out of religion news and the headline simply reads to prevent the next Christian scandal shrink the integrity gap. If, uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, um, you know that we've had a number of people on the show talking about integrity. My friend John Blumberg wrote a book on integrity that is wonderful. It's one of the best books on integrity I've ever read. Uh, but here's how the article reads. It says, when Jerry Falwell Jr. inherited the presidency of the university his father founded, he was a reluctant leader, according to a recent Washington Post profile. Yet, in his 13 years in the president's chair at Liberty, Falwell has slowly expanded his influence from Liberty Liberty University's campus to the national political scene and shown that leadership can be leveraged for a good uh, for good or cause great harm. Currently on a leave of absence from Liberty University because of some controversial social media posts, Falwell has also demonstrated that as a leader's influence grows, so must his or her commitment to integrity. Unfortunately, in many cases, the longer leaders remain in leadership, the more relaxed they become about their principles and convictions. That's exactly what we were saying yesterday, by the way. That's right. They lose That's sight right. of their original purpose, living disconnected from what they preach to others. Words do not match actions. Private lives do not match their public life. The next scandalous headline is just waiting to be written. 
Every leader gets to choose when and if they will face their own humanity and commit to leading with greater integrity. The sooner that happens, the better. Healthy leaders do the hard work to get their baggage down to carry on size. That's a great phrase, which prepares them to handle greater influence. Unhealthy leaders, on the other hand, choose to ignore their integrity gaps, the expanding distance between what they preach and how they live. For those leaders, it's a matter of time before they and those in their wake pay the price. Christian organizations often suffer integrity gaps harder than others as respect for leadership can override accountability. Many churches and Christian nonprofits leave their leaders to wrestle on their own with personal ego, addiction to power, or unresolved trauma. Some of these organizations actively dismiss anyone who dares to question the integrity of a high-profile leader. They put leaders on a pedestal, leaving them isolated and vulnerable. And I would add that's why I think we see a lot of pastors in some of these types of places. Andy Stanley, by the way, just a week or two ago, tweeted something like, he said something like, you you can never cram – for a final on integrity, it's always a pop quiz, which I loved. I loved that idea. Like it's we we want to be. Or I think a lot of people, especially in religious leadership, want to be people of integrity. But right. you know, the opportunities to live with integrity will often catch us off guard. I think th- th- that's when integrity is really, really, really challenged. And for Falwell, you know, like this is this has been a long pattern of of behavior that it feels like. And you and I have been pretty honest on the show is not becoming of a, of a Christian university president, but I, I'd love to know, you know, in the minute or so we have left, what, what do you, what do you think of this article's sort of assessment? It's, it's so spot on churches and ch- Christian organizations. It said must stop ignoring red flags that yeah. indicate leadership integrity gaps. And we, we, uh, with so many uh, around this integrity issue, so often what we do is we say what the article, the other article we said under Falwell's leadership, they've raised a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. Under this pastor's leadership, the church has grown this much. We've built this, but whatever else. Uh-huh. And there's always this, this reasoning given for this integrity gap, but it's going to come back to bite you with as an organization. And it's just not the Christian thing to do. Right. right. And so I love this call and, and the call that you said of others. Uh, to say, you know what, integrity needs to be at the top of the list, especially in a Christian organization. We're going to value integrity above money, above the size of the church, above prestige, whatever else it might be. And we're going to trust that when we have leaders with integrity, it's going to work its way all the way through the organization and it's going to be healthier and more Christ honoring. And so that's what makes me so sad about liberty. It just is, it has an integrity issue and it's coming from the top. And, and so it'll be interesting to see the way it plays out. Yeah, let me just read how this article ends. Christian leaders need more training around healthy relationships, abuse and trauma-informed theology and practical steps to greater accountability. Change is possible. Join us in the mission to see greater leadership integrity, less harm to followers and fewer church scandal headlines. I would add amen and amen. As always, this article is over on our Facebook page. If you want to comment, we'd love to know your thoughts, maybe things you would add to it. That's over the Facebook page, the, uh, the Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, though, is Tim Keller a Marxist? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and Brian Fromm is on the other side of this microphone. That's a weird way to say it. He's on the other side of <laughs> this internet device. No, that's not totally right. true either. He's here too. Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins coming together, high five and socially distance. Uh, a couple of things that I want to read from Tim Keller. Brian was just sort of talking during the break that it seems like he's been a lot more active uh, online since his retirement, which I suppose makes sense. But his his activity al- always seems thoughtful to me. Like I, 
I cannot even really imagine, you know, we've spent the last segment kind of talking about scandal and church leadership or Christian leadership, at least. Can you even, which again, uh, no, no one's exempt or no one's immune, but can you really imagine like a headline coming across your ticker and be like Tim Keller? No. Uh, po- like, can you imagine the same headline for Falwell being subscribed to Keller in any way, shape or form? <laughs> Not at like all. laughable, right? Yeah. You can't even imagine yeah. it. I have such high respect for Tim Keller, obviously only knowing him from afar, listening to sermons and reading books, but uh, the amount of wisdom and I think just pastoral care and someone who has like a track record, right? Didn't start pastoring two years ago. He went for decades and decades and only recently retired. So that's a long way of saying, no, I could never imagine anything like that with Tim Keller. Although he's very honest about how not perfect he is, Yeah, uh, but, but a man of high integrity. I, which I appreciate. And that's, it's not to say that there haven't been other people in our past that have also admitted they weren't perfect and then yep. turned out to have all sorts of skeletons in their closet. But either way, that's not really the point of this segment. I just think that he's been he's been uh, putting out some gems lately and a lot of them around the topic of justice. This one, we're going to read two threads. One's not really a thread. It's just a pretty, pretty succinct statement that a lot of people seem like the first comment on this one, by the way, says, I can't tell you how disappointed I am with this from you beyond belief. So. How, how's that for a teaser? Here's what he said. Tim Keller at Tim Keller NYC said talking about oppression, justice, etc. doesn't make one a Marxist. It makes one a student of the Bible. What do you think of that, Brian? I just can't. Ah, man, I, I have a hard time with the fact that now whenever a pastor or an author or a commentator talks about social justice and live and um you know, caring for the least of these, that somehow it becomes a conversation about Marxism and socialism. And like, there's some, there's some agenda going on. And and I don't even know where we got to that point, but I think Keller is a hundred percent right here, right? Like you can't read the Bible without talking about, uh, standing up for the oppressed, doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with your God, loving the least of these. And I know people want to then parse, well, what's individual responsibility versus, uh, you know, the nation and all of this stuff. But Keller, you you can't argue with what he says here. Talking about oppression, justice, et cetera, makes one a student of the Bible. That is a That is a categorical fact right there. And I don't know why we're losing that. It feels like increasingly where that's becoming a controversial statement. Well, I think, Brian, if you were to say to Twitter, you can't argue this, Twitter would say, hold my beer, because it seems that (laughs) everyone on this thread is arguing it. You have the one that I read uh, where he said he's really disappointed. His uh, handle, by the way, is Real Patriarch. So that's fine. Um, Joe commented, biblical justice and social justice are two very different things. And then Stephen responded saying, Real talk, Christians demonizing social justice is just lazy. I'd argue that social justice is protecting the oppressed, defending the innocent, and caring about the poor and needy. When we treat the idea of social justice as a monolith that equals anti-Christ, we do a disservice. So a bunch of people obviously responded to that. A bunch of other people, like one guy said, go ahead and care for the poor and needy, but be wary of people who claim to be poor and needy and take advantage of the real poor and needy by stealing attention from them. And then Bradley commented, said, I'm not finding that in my Bible. Can you point me toward it? So that's... That's just a couple of the things. I don't know if you're seeing the same comments as I am. I don't know how the Twitter algorithm works. But either way, this one is pretty interesting to me because Tim Keller is pretty categorically conservative. He's in the reform camp. He's uh, an intelligent, educated man. So I know that a lot of people, and again, these are like painting with massively, probably unhelpfully broad brushes, but 
for a lot of people in a very kind of conservative reform camp, he has historically been like their guy. And right. it's sort of like what we were saying with Fauci yesterday. Remember at the beginning of all this, you know, I, f- I felt like Republicans wanted to hoist Fauci up on their shoulders. And now yeah. now they don't even want to be seen in the same room as him. You know, it's just this this odds are like, wow, we liked Keller until he started talking about justice. And now right. we're uncomfortable. And so uh, with that, I'd love to talk about this other thread real quick. Do you want to you want to read that one from him? Sure. But I would also, as to what you're saying, I would also remind people, like you said, Keller's known to be conservative, right? Like he's, yeah. he's in the Presbyterian church, but he's, he ruffles feathers in the Presbyterian church because of his conservatism, all this kind of stuff, theological conservatism. Uh, but I would also make the point that he's got a track record here. He's been pastoring in New York City, doing justice, loving mercy, helping the oppressed, For sure. helping the poor. Uh, for decades. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he's not like a Johnny come lately to this. And this is um, and so you could kind of see him kind of going, I don't I can't believe I'm even having to say these things yeah. and uh, and do this. Yeah. So he tweeted he was in a conversation with a guy and he tweeted respectfully. I'm not adding God to some existing secular system or account of human behavior of morality. I hope to be building a way of doing justice around what God commands and requires. He says, my last article that's coming out goes into further depth on this. Many of the things I'm saying assume a number of, quote, background theological beliefs that obviously many don't share with me. But in the footnotes, I will speak to these background issues, at least to make them more visible. They include one. How do you interpret the Old Testament for Christians now? Think gleaning laws. Uh, What is the doctrine of common grace and how do you read non-Christian thinkers? What's the relationship of corporate to individual responsibility in God's eyes? To what degree can you bind Christian consciences over political issues? These issues have been worked out by Christian theologians over the years. In the footnotes of the last article, I'll show there are long and strong lines on Christian thinkers and theologians who support these beliefs. I can't make a full case for all of these beliefs now, but I'm noting them to make it easier to see the issues of disagreement. I even like that. He's saying, all right, I'll, I'll engage the disagreement. But again, he's writing articles and doing stuff, and I, you could just see him kind of pounding his head going, this is like basic theology here that we are to uh, stand up for the oppressed. Like if you're a Christian and you're like, no, I, I'm not supposed to have a heart for the oppressed or the poor or the marginalized. It's, I, I don't know the gospels that you're reading. And and you could disagree, I guess, with Keller about how that gets worked out. Uh, but to say that justice and, and love of the least of these is not at the very core of what of what the New Testament and the Old Testament teaches. I, I just don't know what Bible you're reading at that point. Well, let me let me offer a, uh, a counterpoint. This is one of the comments from that thread that you just read. He said, no Christian I know is opposed to justice. What we oppose is your definition of justice, which is unjust. Trying to balance scales is the issue, and I really want to know how to handle the disparity between short, ugly woman and tall, beautiful ones. How about IQ? So I don't quite know what that second part was, but like, what he's saying there about no Christian is opposed to justice. You know, I, I think that he's he's probably mostly true. I don't know, though. That feels like, again, a little pie in the sky. But one of the responses is when you give your cloak to someone in need, I think that that is a definition of injustice. You worked for it and they didn't. Right. Need doesn't equate to justice. Most of the gospel is full of blatant examples of injustice in people's favor. So obviously there's a whole lot of other people that are kind of responding. And I think to your point, it's I don't think it's as simple as saying Hey, this is really obvious. Christians need to care about justice. Right. And I, I would probably agree with that comment. Most Christians I know to some degree 
believe that justice is a, a core tenet, at the very least, of the message of Jesus. Where I think we disagree is h- how we're actually to work that out, both as individuals and as communities. What is the relationship with our church community and the government and all that? That's where I think we get kind of all tied up in knots. And again, truth be told, Twitter is not a great place no. to untie some of knots, <laughs> which is why I appreciate that Keller has this presence online, but he is also writing in these more like long-form ways, which can be really helpful. Coming up next, out of Christianity Today, simply doing what you can for Mike Glenn. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Howdy ho, neighbors. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. I miss home improvement. Oh, okay. I like that show. Oh, Heidi Ho. Heidi Ho, that was was Wilson, right? That wasn't... uh, that wasn't Homer Simpson's neighbor, was it? That was Wilson. No, no, no. That was that was Wilson from Home Improvement. Yep, where you can never remember how the really weird stick of that show was you never saw his face. It was always just behind the fence. It's funny too, because uh, I was just young enough that the stick didn't seem weird to me. I was like, Oh, you just don't ever see that guy's face. Looking back now as an adult, you're like, Who wrote that character? That is a very strange choice. Yeah. But yeah, when I was younger, I was like, That just seems normal. Yeah, let me ask you, okay, going back to your childhood or whatever, uh, favorite sitcom that you never really see on TV anymore, right? Like in syndication mm. or stuff. Which one do you miss? Is it Home Improvement? Something else come to mind? Which one? That's up there. Cheers would be up there for sure. Ooh, good one. Love good Cheers. One. Um, my brother and I were kind of like closeted Frasier fans, you know, the spinoff. Okay. There. I mean, okay. I, I love Fresh Prince. That's not quite in the same era, but Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Somebody, by the way, a couple oh. years ago made a trailer for like a modern version of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air movie. And it's brilliant. If you just go <laughs> Google like new Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I think it's just called Bel-Air. It's a movie that doesn't exist, but the guy just made a trailer for it. And it's phenomenal. Have you seen it? I have not seen that trailer. Now, you would be impressed that the other day in our kitchen, I wrapped the entire Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme song to my children. And so I did love that show. Here's one. I just... Of all the shows, and a lot of those you nailed. I love Cheers and some of those. I wasn't a big Frasier guy, but that's okay. Um, uh, the Wonder Years. Oh yeah, yeah. Love the Wonder Years, and I don't. Is that on anything right now? Hulu, Netflix. I can't find it anywhere, and I absolutely love the Wonder Years. That's a great. That's a great entry. We should uh, we should ask that one online too. Like what what's yep. people's favorite television show from their childhood? You, I I might even put Wonder Years neck and neck with Cheers, to be honest. I think so. I love the wonder. Can I ask so you a good. question that has nothing to do with this segment? Will Will I yep. cry at that more now since I'm a father? Th- that is a hundred percent chance. <laughs> yes, absolutely. There are so many poignant marriage and uh, parenting moments in the wonder years. Oh, there is no chance. It, I, it's so funny you say that because I did find it somewhere like five years ago and I was watching it and I got oddly emotional watching the wonder it. years. I believe it. Yes. Man. No, we've no, got no. to find wonder years again. Okay, so here's an article out of Christianity Today. I don't know. I mean, it's been a while since we've gone a week without referencing Christianity Today. So extra props to them for giving us content for the show. Mike Glenn, I don't know that I know a bunch about him, but this is on uh, Scott McKnight's blog, Jesus Creed, which, again, just to say it out loud, probably to an unhealthy degree, if Scott McKnight kind of puts his stamp of approval on it, I'm reading it. I just, I can't. It's just, there's something about it. He doesn't put out trash. He has such a... I don't know, such a, such a helpful perspective on life. So here's, here's the headline, doing what you can. Let me just read a little bit. Yeah. Being human is learning how to live with limitations. Early on, we learn there are certain things we just can't do. We watch the birds in the air and long to join them in the sky. But as any, any kid who jumped out of the barn loft 
wearing a towel around his neck can tell you we can't fly. Most of our early lives are a series of embarrassing moments when we found out something else we can't do. It's singing in public for the first time and having the audience laugh at your solo. It's getting a C-plus on the math test you thought you had aced. It's getting a needs improvement in art. Gradually, life uses humiliation after humiliation to guide us into our life's purpose and focus. It gets worse. Growing old means learning new limitations every day. What you could do yesterday, you find out you can't do today. When I walk into the gym to talk to my boys as they're shooting around, they uh, they want to play me like they did when they were little. And, of course, I was younger. I could still take them, I say, if I wanted to, but right now I just don't want to. Now we have the pandemic. Every day we're given a list of things we can't do. Students can't go back to school. They're trying to study online. Churches are limited to half capacity, wearing masks and social distancing if we can go at all. Baptists love to hug. Trying to tell them to stay six feet apart is risky for local church leaders. We can't go to restaurants. We can't go to the movies. We can't go shopping. We can't hang out with our friends. Well, we can if we sit Uh, six feet apart, but where's the fun in that? Being told every day what we can't do is getting depressing. And in reality, a lot of us are depressed. So what should we do? Well, if you can't do what you want, do what you can. And the truth is we can do a lot. In my current position, I get to work with a lot of younger pastors. And when the pandemic hit and we were told to stay home, they wanted to know how we were going to, quote, do church if we couldn't gather in our facilities on Sunday morning. So we had several conversations uh, reviewing church history and current church practices around the world. There is an unspoken arrogance in the American church that assumes we have the practice of church down to a science. We know how to gather a crowd, focus their attention with appropriate worship music, take the offering, preach a sermon, and do it all in an hour and 15 minutes. I mean, ours is an hour tight. Uh, But how do we do church without a building? We do church very well without a building. Thank you very much. In fact, Buildings are a relatively new accommodation for church life. For generations, the church met in homes, open fields, shops, and barns. Around the world, churches reached thousands without permanent facilities. They meet in homes and around tables and restaurants, open the Bible and study the word. They worship and pray for each other. And when there are too many people to meet in that place, they find another place and start another group. Pastors pour themselves in the lives of their leaders who, in turn, teach their groups and train other leaders. These churches don't grow, uh, uh, oh boy, how do you even say that? Arithmetic. Arithmetically. Arithmetically, is that right? That sounds about right. Arithmetic. But geometrically, yeah. they don't add new members by ones, but by tens and hundreds. We can do groups using video conferencing. I know there are limitations to this, but if it's what you can do, do what you can. You can write emails teaching the word and discipling Uh, and disciplines of following Christ. Pastors used to do this. We called them pamphlets. Some of these pamphlets changed the world. No, you may not be able to visit the hospital, but you can make calls and write prayer cards. I know it's old school, but I'm an old guy. They still work. Email is great. Texts are fine, but there's nothing like hearing the voice of a friend on the other end of a phone call. You can read the Bible. I mean, really read the Bible. You can read theology and biographies of great Christian saints and leaders. I'll stop there. I, I think that this call here to remember all the things that we absolutely can do is so important. And this is how he ends it. He says, the pandemic may have put all of us in a one talent moment. Let's be faithful in small things and prepare ourselves for the moment when God will open up more for us to do. And that starts when we stop worrying about all the things we can't do and simply start doing what we can. What do do you think of this, Brian? It's, it's what we've all been wrestling with for, for months now. And uh, this focus on, uh, what we can't do, what we're missing, what has changed. And it does, it, it can just weigh you down. And 
I was just having this talk with one of my kids yesterday, just going, hey, you know what? One thing we can control is our attitude and, and what I'm going to choose to do, I'm going to try to choose to do is what's without being just overly cheery, right? Is like, what are the benefits of having to do school from home? What are the benefits from how churches or whatever else it might be? And this kind of written the pastors and leaders and church people is it's, it's along those same lines. Like what can we do? Not what, let's not focus just on what we can't do, yeah. but what can we do? And, and doing those things well and faithfully, how can God birth new things and use that where we end up looking back going, man, I would never have tried that. I would never, have, you know, spent a day making phone calls or done a pamphlet, like you said, or whatever else. But man, did, did really good fruit come out of that. And so I think the call to go, not what we can't do, not what have we lost. And there are things that we've lost, but instead to go, what can we do in this day, in this moment? then I'm going to do them. I'm going to do them to the best of my ability, creatively and faithfully. I think this is a call we need to hear in churches, in our families, with school, all with everything right now. Because if all we're talking about is what we've lost, uh, I do think that it's that's just a defeatist attitude that we're not going to be able to really work through. And I think it's, it's fine to say, it's probably even healthy to lament and mourn some of the stuff that we've lost. That's real. Like we don't have to pretend that Absolutely. that doesn't bum us out. But I think when we move to like dwelling on it and we allow those things to kind of keep us like physically and mentally and spiritually stuck, that's when it begins to be a problem. So either way, that's, that's not just a call to pastors and church leaders. That's to all of us to do what we can do, recognizing we're all trying to navigate this weird season as best we can. And that's about our Facebook page, the common good radio show. If you'd like to weigh in or add some comments there coming up next though, we're going to talk about the power of, of gentleness. That's coming up next in the second hour here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about gentleness, pro-choice theology, and then we're going to end with some good news. You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good. I missed you. Glad you're back or still here or whatever you chose to do. Either way, we're happy that you're here. My name is Ian Simpkins, joined as always by the wonderful Brian Fromm. And together, this is The Common Good. It's kind of unfair to leave PJ out, I guess, because without yep. without him, it's just you and I like talking at our computers and then the, the files and the signal don't actually go anywhere. So <laughs> with the three of our powers combined, we are The, the Common Good, which that feels pretentious to say, doesn't it? Is that the word you would use? Pretentious? I'm going with it, though. I'm, go- I'm going with it. <laughs> Nobody else is the common good. We are the common good. Which is most certainly inaccurate because there's a lot of other shows called the common good. So That is true. Uh, I don't even think we can. We can't even claim that we're the only show called the common good. Either way, that said, that's precisely why going to the Facebook page or the podcast and subscribing and rating and reviewing. That's, that all helps us out because it is a pretty common name. So any kind of interaction there is uh is super appreciative plus if you want to send us messages ideas for future shows any of that we would love to hear from you and uh while you're at it instagram and twitter at common good talk is another way to kind of follow some of the stuff that's going on with the show here all right so we we've called a number of people friend of the show but i would put scott Sauls probably in a different category because well before we ever even had him on we at least initially we were referencing him once a week twice a week is that is that fair to say at least, yeah, some weeks more than that, but I would say on average once a week. He's a, he's a pastor and an author, and he blogs like mad. We actually had him on the show 
um, a couple of months ago to talk about his new book, A Gentle Answer, which uh, was phenomenal. But out of the Gospel Coalition, there was actually a review of his book by Ian Harbour. That was pretty good. And the reason that I kind of wanted to tackle this, because this this is how the article begins. Uh, It says, if you could summarize 2020 in one word, what would it be? In fact, I feel like we're on a roll today. We should we should just pose that question online yep. and see what people. If you could summarize 2020 in just one word, what would it be? Let me just ask Brian Fromm, what word would you use? The first one that came to mind because it's the one everyone has been using is unprecedented. Uh, okay. <laughs> how often we say unprecedented? Because in so, in many ways, uh, we're dealing with things this year that we've never dealt with, namely the pandemic and things have changed. And how many times have we said on this show or said in our families or ever, it's just unprecedented times. We got to figure it out. So that's what I'm going with. How about you? Choose one word. I was trying to think of a word that could be both positive and negative, you know, because uh, I do think there has been both positive and negatives for this year. Yeah. I was thinking of disruptive where a lot of times okay. disruptive disruptions can be really negative, but they can also be really helpful and sort of like, knocking the rest off or helping, you know, people in communities think differently about things. So yeah, I think I'd go with disruptive. This author says, if you could summarize 2020 in one word, what would it be? Chaos, outrage, fear, unknown, polarization, or anger immediately spring to mind. One that wouldn't is gentle, but in a world tossed to and fro by the 24 hour news cycle, nonstop scandal, political upheaval, and ever increasing outrage, perhaps gentleness is exactly what it takes to break through the noise, division, and hate. Maybe gentleness is the Christian secret weapon to not just diffuse tension and anger, but to also demonstrate the truthfulness and beauty of the gospel to our culture. I'll just stop right there and ask you, Brian, why do you think some people will laugh at that paragraph? Like, why does gentleness let's let's get even more narrow. Why do you think that so many Christians find that approach laughable? It's just not the culture we live in, right? Like, yeah. We, we want to be authoritative and, and we think of gentleness, other words that go with it, maybe meekness um, as more kind of like, what am I supposed to let myself be a doormat? Am I supposed to be walked all over? Am I, that doesn't seem like a way to uh, combat either th- the wrongs of our culture or to stand out or whatever else it might be. So I think that we think of gentleness uh, in a way, like I said, of being walked over and, and, think of ourselves as, uh, you know, uh, I know that the Bible speaks of meekness and humility, but that doesn't necessarily sound like the way that I want to go about my my day or my my life. So I, I think for some reason in our culture, gentleness comes with some negative connotations. I remember, uh, I think it was Deb Hirsch a couple of years ago. She tweeted something like, gentleness is a fruit of the spirit, not a feminine quality. And I thought, oh, boom. <laughs> yeah. It, it, like you were just saying, sometimes, especially, yep. unfortunately, for Christian men, gentleness is not even a target we're shooting after. Like it's not, it's not that we're like, Oh, we're kind of bad at it, but we're aware of it and we're working on it. Like gentleness again. And and maybe this, I don't know if this is true from, you know, maybe a female perspective, but I certainly know in uh, from a masculine, masculine perspective. And and even unfortunately within Christianity, gentleness is like not even admirable. And the article kind of goes on by saying that says, I know you might be thinking gentleness, really? I don't think gentleness is going to solve these issues. I'm angry. We need change now. We don't have time to be gentle. Gentleness, however, may not always look like what you expect. That's exactly what Scott Saul, senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, addresses in his new book, A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. So he goes on. I'm just going to read another paragraph or two and kind of get your response. He says, A gentle answer isn't tips and tricks about how to be nice. 
Gentleness isn't about the things we do. It's about who we are, which is a great mm-hmm. distinction. It's about our spiritual formation into people whose natural disposition to the world is gentleness, not passivity, not turning a blind eye, but approaching each person and situation with the gentleness of Jesus Christ. For this to happen, though, we must be transformed by Christ's gentleness toward us. Saul's lays this out, uh, lays out this transformation in three ways. Jesus befriends the sinner in us. He reforms the Pharisee in us and he disarms the cynic in us. Without mm. these three things happening in our hearts, there is no path forward. What do you think of that? It's, it's great. And it's again, um, to, to go, we, we are to treat the world and treat others as a reflection of how Jesus has treated us here. He says the gentleness shown to us, I think is uh, right. Jesus says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. We, we live out of uh, how he ha- what he has already done for us and for the world. And so, yeah, this is, this is good. And he, Saul's goes on to say, cultivating a gentle spirit hinges on a paradigm shift. Saul's writes, Jesus and Christianity do not discriminate between good people and bad. Instead, Jesus and Christianity discriminates between humble people and proud people. Hey, like, that'll, preach right there. Hey, that'll preach. But we think about good and bad. And he's like, no, Jesus spoke. He spoke his harshest words to the proud, to the Pharisee, to those who are trying to put themselves about in front. And even before, when I was trying to tell you why we've, you know, why gentleness has kind of a bad rap in our culture. And I, I likened it to meekness. And then in the, your mind, it should have gotten all of us to go, doesn't Jesus say, blessed are the meek? <laughs> Isn't that what yeah. Jesus himself says? And so you could see how our cultural norm of aggression and anger go against this. Uh, but yeah, we got to wrestle with what Saul said. Jesus discriminates not between the good and the bad, but between the humble and the proud. Let me, I know that we don't have a lot of time, but he, uh, he has another category here on how to be righteously angry which some people may feel juxtaposes gentleness and we don't have time to get into that entirely, but I would encourage you to read the whole thing. In fact, read Saul's book. Uh, But he simply says, allowing Jesus to change us, we are formed into his image to embody his gentleness. Saul's explains this transformation in five ways. One, we grow thicker skin. Two, we do anger well. Three, we receive criticism graciously. Four, we forgive all the way. And five, we bless our own betrayers. He goes on, being nice isn't being gentle. Nice people in their reluctance to confront can sometimes work against the purposes of God, Saul's right. Saul's points out that anger isn't necessarily a sinful emotion. He distinguishes between destructive anger and restorative anger. Restorative anger is the anger that brought about the civil rights movement that led Mother Mm -hmm. Teresa to speak boldly about abortion to President Clinton, and that leads to movements of justice for the oppressed all over the world today. Restorative anger doesn't destroy its enemy. It acts in confidence and surrenders the results to God. And then Saul writes this, while toxic anger destroys the good in order to promote evil, healthy anger seeks to destroy evil in order to promote and protect the good. Uh, 10 seconds or less. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's that whole concept of righteous anger and uh, that, that, that has created great fruit over the years. Jesus wasn't always, a, uh, Jesus wasn't, uh, Jesus got angry and Jesus pushed people in and challenged people. And so this isn't about just being nice and being a pushover. Uh, but this concept of the, the, the line that's going to stick with me is that one about humble and proud. I think we really have to wrestle with this and not just being about, oh, I can't ever get angry. You know, there's times for righteous anger. But again, that has to be done in a certain way to be God honoring. Yep, that's right, man. Coming up next, making it up as we go, the loss of ritual and the challenge of COVID. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, 
hi, Mark. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Happy Spumoni Day, by the way. I forgot to mention that earlier. Uh, thank you. I'm not sure I know what a Spumoni is. Can you tell me? I mean, you have a Google machine right in front of you, don't you? Okay. I'm going to look it up while you get, while you get it. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a gelato of some kind. I think I, I think it's, so. it's like molded or something, something weird about it. It's a kind of gelato. I think I could be wait. Are you really looking it up right now? It is a kind of ice cream with different colors and flavors in layers and often made with bits of fruit and nuts. Okay. Disgusting. Okay. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So here's this article by Diana Butler Bass. And she wrote at the cottage, making it up as we go, the loss of ritual and the challenge of COVID. She wrote this just yesterday, which is interesting because I feel like way at the beginning of all this back in March and April, you and I spent a lot of time talking about rhythms and rituals and like trying yeah. to kind of get a handle on it. It's I'm glad that somebody wrote about it recently because it feels like it made a whole lot of sense at the beginning all of, of all this when everyone was feeling like their, you know, their equilibrium was thrown way off. What I find interesting now is that I feel like a lot of us, like any you know shift in our lives and patterns, we've probably adopted some rituals and patterns and rhythms that we actually don't want to be there. But it's been over five months, so it, so that's kind of the new normal now. And uh, I I just like her perspective and how she kind of raises some questions here. So why don't you uh, why don't you dive us in and then we'll we'll respond. Yeah, I totally resonate to what you just said there too about. Like you almost forget after five months, what were my rituals? Like what was my right. rhythm before? Like right. it's weird because those rhythms have been in place for decades. Yes. But after five months, you're like, what is it? And so, yeah, I totally get what you're saying on that one. Let me read what she said. She said, I picked up the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, pulled apart the bread and slid some potato chips into the gooey center and took a bite. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds good. Uh, my lunch today transported me back to elementary school. Suddenly, it was as if I was back in the school cafeteria the first day after the summer with a surprise note in my lunchbox. Welcome back to school, Diana. Love, Mom. There was always a note on that first day, a message in my mom's neat hand, the little doodles on the page every year, one of her rituals. Hmm. Maybe it was the PB&J or maybe Dr. Jill Biden standing in an empty classroom giving her speech, but I'm thinking about fall and all the rituals associated with starting school. We've lost much this year, including the loss of ritual, formal holiday rituals like Easter and Passover, less overtly religious ones like baseball's opening day or July 4th parades, other rituals like graduations, birthdays, anniversaries. There were no summer weddings or baby showers, no in-person church or synagogue or temple, even with friends falling ill and the deaths that have occurred, no hospital visits or funerals to attend. Right. We also lack some uh, we also lack informal rituals. The practice regularity that made up daily life, coffee with friends, the neighborhood book club, the gripe session with coworkers at the bar near the office, working out at the gym, dinner at a favorite restaurant. These are rituals too, routines that connected us to one another, how we offered friendship, forgiveness, advice, and care, familiar, repeated acts that framed hours, days, weeks, and months, the habits that composed our lives have vanished. That's really well put, don't you think? Kind of encapsulating some of the big uh, rhythms, but also just those day-to-day -day rhythms that we've lost. Which I imagine too, like even just reading this list, it almost reminded me of some of the stuff that I've forgotten we'd lost. You know, this is kind of what I meant by like in March, April, everyone was real. There was like a visceral recognition that these weren't there. And you can almost forget, like even just reading Oh, yeah. Coffee with friends. I forgot that was yeah. a thing that happened <laughs> pretty regularly, you know, which yeah. is 
maybe that's a little bit more of my wiring. I'm, I'm kind of always like, all right, well, what's next? Like you, it's, it can be difficult for me to sometimes really sit and reflect on, especially if it's something that was lost, you know, she goes on to say, I think why this is so important. Ritual links us to others, shapes our memories and marks our years. Even the least liturgical and non-religious among us understand ritual in these ways. My friend, Casper Turkuli, who writes on soul for practices says rituals make the invisible connections of life, meaningful, visible. Um, COVID has robbed us of ritual, which again, not maybe entirely. There's probably new rituals that like, for example, I'll just say this since all this in March, I've been able to kind of work out that. I, I take my boys on a long walk at the end of every workday. And Mm -hmm. that's not something that I'd, I'd ever done. Not with any level of consistency. Like it's for some reason, this new rhythm has afforded me like, Hey, Monday through Friday, you know, at 5.30, you're going on a walk with dad. And that I actually have appreciated that ritual. Yeah. But she goes on to say, this loss uh, contributes to feeling isolated and sad. Without familiar rhythms and seasons, we've become disconnected from our own lives, other people, and traditions that mattered more than we knew. COVID has forced us to reconstruct our rituals. There it is. Drive-by celebrations, Zoom calls, virtual happy hours, online birthdays. It isn't just priests or rabbis or yoga teachers creating new rituals for their communities. We're all rewriting daily rituals and important rites of passage in our lives and families. That's hard work. No wonder we're exhausted. It is one of the less recognized challenges we're facing in the pandemic, which I think is so wise because there's some like really obvious overt things that are draining our energy. But kind of what she's getting at is, all of us either consciously or subconsciously are having to kind of reestablish these rhythms, which takes a whole different kind of like output and work. And that's most likely contributing to some of our like collective exhaustion. Yeah, I know even as summer came to an end here before school starts, uh, my family would often we'd take a day to go to the city or we'd take a day to go to the dunes in Indiana, like to the beach. And those are still open. You can still do them, but they're so much more complicated now where it was almost like. Uh, and, and then you're like, hey, should we go to this city? And you're like, oh, man, that's going to be hard. How do you even do that? And you almost just start. It's another loss. Like, right. This is how we always ended our school, our, our summer. Now you're like, oh, I don't even know if we can really do it. And now she goes on to say with the school year starting again, a time marked by rituals that make up childhood memories, shopping for school supplies, packing lunches. This is our culture's time of odd beginnings, just as the year winds towards winter. Uh, fall brings it all back. She says, so I encourage you to mark the school year this year with some sort of ritual, nothing difficult or complex, but things that are familiar, life-giving and comforting. I felt that as only my daughter has started school so far. My my two younger ones, they pushed it off till September 1st, but it felt weird to take a picture. We always take a picture of the kids in front of the house before school starts. And then you're like, all right, head on back inside for virtual. It's just weird, man. It's just all weird. And I think you put a good finger on it to say these, the weirdness of it and the, the difference, it just becomes mentally exhausting over time as it's little one after little one after little one. It just becomes uh, a little mentally exhausting. Yeah, she gives some suggestions here for some of those rhythms. I want to offer a couple of them, at least in the uh, minute and a half we have left. She says, for those with children, like you were saying, Brian, whether your children are in school or online, take those first day pictures and post them on social media to celebrate the rite of passage to a new grade. That's good. For parents facing in-person school opening, make masks fun and important. Send small children off with a mask depicting favorite characters. Teach them how to wear the mask correctly. Do a family mask blessing. That's a great idea. There's a whole prayer that she includes. For parents of online learners, of course, you'll be creating structures and rituals for your children with guidance from schools and teachers. This is for you. Find Sabbath time in the week for yourself and take it. Give yourself that gift. You're doing so much 
Make even a brief time for quiet ritual to center, pray, and reflect. That's so good. For those who live alone, empty nesters are those who just love fall. Sharpen your pencils, tidy your workspace, and buy some new books you've wanted to read. Donate supplies to your local school. Many children depend on schools for meals. Find a local food pantry or organization and contribute to their efforts. Bless your masks, too. Find an online community or a safe, socially distanced outdoor group that offers some sort of spiritual mm-hmm. development and ritual, a book study, a learning community, a yoga class, a gratitude group, a meditation circle. And then she ends by saying, we can grow, we can connect, and we can make memories even in these hard times. That was just like a quick flyover. She has a bunch more suggestions that I honestly thought were really good, and none of them are mind-blowing, but certainly I think uh, I think it's the kind of thing that when everything else seems chaotic, sometimes the most obvious things can be hard to really recognize. And so at the very least, regardless of you know kind of your stage of life or what your home situation is, I'd encourage you to go to the Facebook page, check out this article. I think it gives some really good guidance on how to, okay, how do we fight the urge to kind of let the chaos control us right. and to establish some really kind of healthy rhythms going forward. Coming up next, a segment that will likely get us some emails. The headline simply reads, does abortion trump everything else? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey, friends, moment of confession. I was trying to think of a creative way to start this segment, and I just couldn't think of anything. <laughs> just nothing. I was going to, I've shouted, I've done accents, I've tried introducing Brian first, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you're used to doing it one way, it really does kind of throw you off, doesn't it? We should play, we should create like a start the segment bingo or mm. like a wheel or something, and we have to spin. <laughs> I'm going to work on that over the weekend. It it's is terrifying. Be, it's going to be a game. Yes. And for each segment, you, you have to start this segment with like a certain prompt or something. No one else will find that fun except for us, but uh, that might that might still be I'll real be like, enough. I'm like, I spun the wheel. I must use the word alongside. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it'd be like the most boring wheel spin. It's like only words that you already use. Like it's just, <laughs> he spun the wheel and it says, do it how he's always done it. Oh, <laughs> oh here we go. <laughs> do it in Russian. Nah, don't do that. Okay. This one I know might rile some people up. And just to say it again out loud, Brian and I will regularly read from articles that we agree with a little bit. We agree with a lot. We maybe disagree with entirely or agree with entirely. All that's fair game. Really, the only criteria for us is if we think it might be interesting and or helpful. So this is from uh, Ron Sider. Many of you will be familiar with the name Ron Sider. If you're interested, you can you can definitely go Google his name. He's done a lot of things over the years. But he wrote at his personal blog, the headline simply reads, does abortion trump everything else? Do you want to get us into this, Brian? Sure. Uh, yeah, Ron Sider, famously known for writing the book Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Uh, he writes this. He says, I believe abortion should be grieved, not celebrated, discouraged, not promoted. I was glad to see the recent statement of Democrats for Life urging the Democratic Party to be more welcoming of them. Decades ago, I wrote a book. I wrote a book, he said, called Completely Pro-Life. And I recently published an op-ed in the USA Today criticizing Joe Biden and the Democratic Party's current position on abortion. But does abortion trump? And then he parenthetically says, sorry, but that is the shortest way to ask my question. (laughs) Does abortion trump all other issues? Some evangelicals and Catholics think, think so. I disagree, he writes. And here's why. Over the course of my life, I've had good Christian friends who said the overriding political issue is nuclear weapons or global poverty or marriage or abortion. I've always said, I care about that issue, but what does the Bible say God cares about? Hmm. When we ask that question, 
it quickly becomes clear that God cares both about the sanctity of human life and economic justice for all, especially the poor. God cares both about marriage and racial justice. God cares both about sexual integrity and peacemaking and care for creation. That's why the National Association of Evangelicals, which is the largest evangelical network in the U.S., says in its official public policy document that, quote, faithful evangelical civic engagement and witness must champion a biblically based balanced agenda. Hmm. And this official document goes on to illustrate what a biblical uh, balanced agenda includes. The document has eight major sections protecting religious liberty, safeguarding the nature and sanctity of human life, strengthening marriage, families, and children, seeking justice and compassion for the poor and the vulnerable, preserving human rights, pursuing racial justice and reconciliation, promoting just peace and restraining violence, and caring for God's creation. Hmm. The official evangelical document clearly says all these issues are important. It does not say one issue is more important than all the others. They are all crucial parts of of a biblically balanced political agenda. I'll stop there for a minute. This is kind of getting at what we've tried to wrestle with, I think mostly over the last couple of days, this whole concept of how do you um, kind of navigate this, who I'm going to vote for or what party I'm going to, I'm going to stand with uh, when you agree with some things and not the other, how do you, how do you navigate that? And cider here is going, it's gotta be uh, more than just abortion and uh, I, that's what I think is going to rile some people up because for a lot of people, and yeah. I think for good reason, abortion is the issue. I remember talking to a pastor friend of mine who said, I'm unashamedly a one issue voter. Uh, and he was talking about abortion and Cider's going, no, I don't think that that is how it should be. All right. Let me just read a little bit more. It's a long article. We're definitely not going to have time to get to all of it. He writes a little later, later in his blog, the official catechism of the Catholic Church says the death penalty is, quote, inadmissible because it is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person. In, Jan- in 2019, the Trump administration announced that it would again reinstate federal executions after a 16-year hiatus. That is also a pro-life issue. It is clear that abortion is by no means the only pro-life issue in 2020. It's also true that there are important economic programs that can help reduce abortion. One of the primary reasons women give for having an abortion is financial hardships if they have another child. A variety of programs, including health insurance for all, financial help before and after giving birth, affordable child care, etc., can make abortions uh, can make abortion to avoid financial hardships less attractive. Unlike Donald Trump, Democrats are more likely to support such programs. Unfortunately, Joe Biden now seems to oppose any restrictions on abortion and wants the government to pay for abortion. That ignores the long-standing pattern discovered over decades in Gallup polls that about 70% of the American people want some restrictions on abortion. Only 29% of Americans want abortion to be legal in all circumstances. 20% of Americans want abortion to be always illegal, and 50% want it to be legal but with some restrictions. To ignore that 70% of all Americans who want at least some restrictions on abortion is both morally wrong and politically foolish. But let's suppose that Donald Trump wins November 3rd, points one or two more, quote, pro-life persons to the Supreme Court, and the high court proceeds to overturn Roe v. Wade. Would that end abortions in America? Not a chance. The 79% of Americans who want abortion to be legal will vote to make that happen. So if the law about abortion were suddenly written by the states, the vast majority of Americans would still be living in places where abortion is legal. There would probably be some restrictions on things like late-term abortions, but abortions would still be widely legal. That means that on the basis of the most realistic projection of what Trump's reelection would mean on abortion, not a lot would substantially change in spite of the current political rhetoric 
major change in this area is not in play in the 2020 election. I guess I'll stop there. What do, what do you think of what he's writing so far? It's it again raises the complexity of the issues before us. And that's it's quite frankly, one of the difficulties when you really get down to who do I want to vote for? Uh, you're going to disagree with things from both ends. And and, and that's what's the difficulty because you got to choose one of them. Um, and I do like this call to, if we're going to call ourselves pro-life, it's, that's got to be the lens that we look at all of these issues, capital punishment that he brings up or immigration or poverty and taxes, whatever else it might be. Pro-life doesn't just mean, uh, the unborn, but it also does mean the unborn. And so, uh, you know, wrestling with those things, I think is difficult. And like I said yesterday, it discourages me. Uh, when you read of what Biden has said, and then particularly what Kamala Harris believes on abortion, it's really hard to get your mind around people who are that uh, that far out, as Cider says here, beyond even what the majority of Americans would vote for. But then there's things on the Trump administration that you go, man, that doesn't really promote life either. And that's what makes this so difficult. So I do appreciate people like Cider going, hey, take your pro-life, um, your your lens of, of being pro-life, and, and that's Put that over everything that you're voting for. Don't cherry pick the ones here and go, well, I'm not going to be pro-life when it comes to capital punishment or guns or poverty, but I will be when it comes to abortion or whatever else. Uh, Be consistent and then hold both parties to that standard. Yeah, I'll I'll just sort of read how he ends this because he does talk about the last sentence I read in spite of the current political rhetoric, major changes in this area, meaning abortion is not in play in the 2020 elections, but other pro-life issues certainly are poverty reduction racial justice, avoiding disastrous climate change, and healthcare for all certainly are in play this year. I grieve abortion, but does not trump everything else. As the National Association of Evangelicals says in its official public policy document, biblical people must support a, quote, biblically balanced agenda, not one issue politics. Either way, and I I know that we have to wrap this up, that's up at our Facebook page. I know I say it every time, but we really, really would welcome your feedback. We might even revisit this next week based on some of your comments. If you have other articles you want to suggest that we check out or read, we know that there's a lot of work. There's going to be a lot more conversation between now and November and probably long past that. But uh, again, just to say it out loud, we really, really do value and appreciate your feedback in any way, shape or form. And with all of that said, I think it's an appropriate way to not only end the show, but end the week with some good news. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some good news! Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good for the last time today and this week, to be honest. Fret not, though, unless something drastically changes. We'll be back again next week, Monday to Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Also, wherever it is you get podcasts. Extra props to those of you listening to us at twice the speed. Also, like a raised eyebrow for those of you listening to us at half the speed. I've done that before, and it is super weird, but uh, more power to you. Brian, tomorrow is a couple of pretty important holidays, and I'm, I'm going to share them with you and then ask okay. if you're doing anything special on these days. Um, it's National Never Been Better Day. It's oh, National positive. Tooth Fairy Day. Mm. It's also National Pecan Tort Day. So a lot of, a lot of pecan-themed holidays this week. I was going to say, didn't we just have a pecan holiday? It's like chocolate pecan something. Oh. Yeah, a lot, lot of pecans or pecans, pecan pie, however you say it, whatever your, uh, whatever your jam is. Pecan jam, is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> the jam. <laughs> Sorry, I'm distracted. Okay, so 
We, we typically do this at least once a week. There's a really, really wonderful website. It's called Good News Network. You can learn more at goodnewsnetwork.org. And we, we try to at least once a week dedicate a whole segment to just some good news. And just a heads up, there's no hot take on any of these. We don't have any like you know attempt at a deep response or underlying meaning. It's just m- stories that make us feel good. And uh, that's how we're going to end today and this week. And I'm going to let Brian Fromm go first. Yep. The first one is this. These scientists are fighting ocean plastic with biodegradable flip-flops made from <laughs> algae. <laughs> it's a lot there. Yep. Uh, it says a lot of entrepreneurial energy has been thrown into using algae as a replacement for petroleum-based plastics in the creation of, the con- of consumer goods. And now some California researchers have applied this technology to one of the ocean's greatest polluting burdens, flip-flops. The world's most popular shoe... The flip-flop accounts for a huge amount of plastic waste that ends up in the ocean. I never knew that. Some models have suggested they account for a quarter of all plastics in our seas. Uh, UC San Diego partnered with the startup company uh, Algenesis Materials to produce a commercial-grade polyurethane foam from algae oil to create a sturdy flip-flop that will biodegrade in around 16 weeks. With a biomass content of around 52%, the flip-flops are still entirely biodegradable, but that hasn't stopped the collaboration from looking to create a 100% biomass shoe. In testing to see whether or not the polyurethane algae flip-flops would degrade, uh, Stephen Mayfield, a professor of biology at UC San Diego, and his team buried them in compost and normal soil. They discovered the 16-week decomposition time frame. That is fascinating. couple things about this, Ian. One, I would never have guessed that flip-flops are that much of a culprit in the plastics in our seas. And two, controversial take here, I don't really like a flip-flop. I was going to say, I hate flip-flops so much that it makes sense to my psyche that they're also ruining our oceans. Like, that's how, <laughs> that's how, that's how I feel about them. Like, oh, you would flip-flop. You would. How dare you? I'm with you on that. You gross piece of footwear. Although, someone like if someone ran past me in a pair of flip-flops, I'd laugh like a child. I always find that really funny. Um, This next one, I feel like we've touched on this actually, and I found this one really surprising. It says generous Americans are actually giving more to charities through the pandemic survey says. That surprises me a ton. It says it looks like the frequency of charitable giving by individuals in the U.S. is continuing and even increasing during the economic uncertainty of the coronavirus pandemic. The report from LendingTree reported that about two-thirds of respondents said they had not changed their charitable giving habits from previous years with 34% donating more than once within the last year. Uh, The report also uncovered increases in forms of giving, which aren't usually recorded due to the inability to write them off on income taxes. These included donating to a local relief fund and sending money to a loved one who was laid off. 56% said they make recurring donations, meaning they donate to the same charity or organization once a month or more often. The generosity was impressive when it involved people they knew personally who were affected by lockdown. Some consumers continue to pay for services they can't use during social distancing guidelines like housekeeping and babysitting. There was a lot of public debate before the the first U.S. stimulus package was passed about whether people who had monetary means or property would, upon recognizing the gravity of the financial blow the country was about to receive, continue to support people who relied on them for their livelihoods. The survey shows that many did indeed choose to make to make sure person-to-person service providers did not fall on hard times. Are you surprised by that? It is counterintuitive. Now, I have seen, like, even, 
you know, anecdotally, like most of our churches, mine included, giving has stayed up and you hear of people giving. So it's kind of fits with the stories I've heard, but it is counterintuitive. You wouldn't think this would be the case during a financial crisis and a pandemic. Well, and I'll just add this last part before we move on to the next one. It says heavy duty giving is up a whopping 667%, while personal charity wow. is a great marker to judge how charitable a society is. It's equally amazing to note that large scale corporate giving actually increased during 2020. In June, Fidelity Charitable, the largest organizer of donor advised funds, a kind of charitable savings account, reported that these funds uh, have donated $3.4 billion in 2020, a 28% increase in giving in the first six months over the same period the previous year. Together, the donors directed a whopping 667% increase in their grants to food banks and other food assistance programs across the United States. There's a bunch more there, but that actually, that's my definition of some feel-good news right there. Yeah, that's encouraging. Next one, lifelike robotic pets bring joy and serenity to seniors combating stress and loneliness. I love it. Lifelike companion animals are now offering the elderly all the feel-good perks of pet ownership, but without the drawbacks. According to research, pet therapy has numerous benefits that run the gamut from helping alleviate anxiety and loneliness to lowering blood pressure and cortisol levels to fostering enhanced social interaction. The simple act of petting animals releases an automatic relaxation response, a report from UCLA Health reveals. Humans interacting with animals have found that petting the animal promoted the release of serotonin, prolactin, and oxytocin, all hormones that can play a part in elevating moods. Unfortunately, the practicalities of pet ownership, from feeding, grooming, and vet visits, not to mention cleaning up the occasional oops, all too often (laughs) limits seniors, especially those in assisted living, from having a fluffy friend to call their own. But now, thanks to a novel breed of robotic puppies and kitties, many seniors are getting a new leash on life you see what they did there Hey-o. the leader of the pack when it comes to robotic companion animals is joy for all companion pets this line of adoptable animatronic fur babies uh was specifically created by a group of former hasbro toy designers with seniors in mind so that's fun uh <laughs> at first when i read this i'm like that's kind of weird robotic pets but it makes sense if seniors especially can't have real pets then this is the next best thing Way to go, Brian. All right, here's another one. A Nigerian entrepreneur invents giant solar-powered refrigerators that cut spoilage to help farmers earn 25% more. I love stories like this so much. One of the great inventions in human history, the refrigeration is being brought to rural fish and produce markets in Nigeria through an entrepreneur's invention of 100% solar-powered walk-in cold storage rooms. Uh, Boy, can you say that name? Naimekasi Ikegu. Wanu has been showered with awards for his pioneering cold hubs, which use transformative technology that, like all great innovations, tackles several problems at once. Around 6,000 tons of fish are harvested every day on the rural Nigerian side of the Niger Delta. But due to the tropical climate, only 2,000 tons of fish are sold fresh. The story is the same for fruits and vegetables, which on average can survive a maximum of only two days in the West African nation's heat and humidity. Designed specifically for off-grid areas, cold hubs employ rooftop solar panels to generate enough electricity to power the units in all weather conditions while providing reliable 24-7 autonomous refrigeration. This cuts down on spoilage but also leads to much higher profits. I love stories like this. A bag of fresh bonga fish should, in theory, fetch between $20 and $40, but without storage facilities, fishermen either sell the same bag for much less to avoid spoilage or they smoke the dry, uh, they smoke or dry the fish and sell it days later while accepting much less due to the higher value and demand that fresh fish commands. Cold Hubs currently serves 
3,517 farmers and fishermen. The company has wow. so far installed 24 hubs, saving over, are you ready for it? 20,000 tons of food from spoilage wow. and employing 48 women to service the refrigerators at a rental cost of $1 a day on a pay-as-you-go subscription model. Users can increase their income. Are you ready? By being able to sell more fresh food. I love that. I love that story that's so much. Great. That's just a feel-good story through and through. And uh, that's just a way that we wanted to end the show. We know it's not hard-hitting news, but hopefully to put a smile on your face. And as always, if you have suggestions for future shows, even as early as next week, shoot us a message over on the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. My name is Ian Simpkins. His name is Brian Fromm. As always, it's been a joy to be with you. We hope you join us again on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. And uh, what else should I say, Brian? Have a great weekend. <laughs> Have, Have a great, great weekend, weekend everyone.